Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome to the NASCAR NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan. Today, a NASCAR NBC podcast first. We are taping this on the water at Gangplank Marina in Washington, D.C., where I am on the boat owned by the guest, who is Ramsey Poston. Ramsey, thanks for having me. Welcome to Sojourner at the Gangplank Marina. <laughs> I was going to ask you if this boat had a name. Sojourner is the name. Sojourner is the name. Terrific. The reason I want to have you on, of course, is that you have a pretty long, extensive background in NASCAR, PR work both for the sanctioning body, as a consultant for some teams, some owners. Want to get into all that, but let's just first start with your background, Ramsey. Your family was involved in politics from this area here uh, in Washington, D.C. Tell us how you came about being a PR consultant. I was born and raised here in Washington, D.C., and from a young age was interested in politics, got involved uh, in working in a lot of campaign work. So I get to travel around the country and live in a lot of different communities from southeast Iowa to Flint, Michigan, Montgomery, Alabama, Seattle, Washington, Pennsylvania, took me to a lot of places to do campaign work. And campaign work is fascinating because there's an end result. You're going to know at the end of this process how you did and and how your candidate did. But more importantly, the fascinating thing about campaigns is you learn about people and their cultures and their subcultures, whether they live in the Deep South or in the Iron Belt or out West. We're the same and we're different, but you kind of get into those subcultures and it's really interesting. And And I do, anytime I have an opportunity to talk to young people wondering what to do, I always encourage them to get involved uh, with a political campaign, whether Democrat, Republican, Independent, there's no other place that gives you better experience and the ability to understand Americans and who we are and, and what makes us tick. And that informs your view about how to communicate to them when you meet people from all walks of life and places in the country that tells you how to talk to them. Yeah. And at the end of the day, people, we're, we're all most interested in, in our self-interest, whether we want to admit it or not, right? What, what, what affects us? How does a policy uh, help or, or harm us? And, and, you, and so if you're in Iowa, you really get a perspective of the farmers and what farmers go to and, and their trials and tribulations. Go to Flint, Michigan. You're going to hear a lot from the auto workers and what it's like to work in a factory. You know, you, you understand what a third shift is. I would not have learned that naturally in Washington, D.C. All of these things I can already tell, drawing this into the topic that we're going to spend most of our time on today, when, it, when we think of NASCAR and we think of the tapestry of, of NASCAR fans, I mean, certainly you're thinking, one, people across the country, but also certainly a blue-collar 
bent to that base as well. And the, you know, the third shift factory workers did. So did all of that work kind of inform your views coming into working in racing? Is there crossover between messaging and politics and working on media relations there and doing it in, in the racing environment? When I first came over to NASCAR, the most frequent question I got was, why would you leave politics for sports? <laughs> um, and and I noticed very quickly that there, there's a real crossover and a parallel between politics and sports, and, and especially NASCAR, which is so fan dependent. And, you know, in, in sports and in NASCAR, you always want to make non-fans, casual fans, and casual fans, avid fans. And it's just like that in politics. You, you know, you have your core voters and you have what people hear the phrase all the time about a swing voter. You want to make those swing voters core voters as well. So a lot of the process is the same and a lot of parallels. The tug of war between NASCAR trying to reach, and we hear it especially today as much as we did when you were still heavily involved in the sanctioning body side more than a decade ago about that, satisfying the different constituencies here where you have the old guard, traditional, I think it's fair to say, southern-based fan versus the fan in New York or Chicago or Los Angeles that they're trying to hook and bring in. It's definitely a lot of competing interests and viewpoints. Yeah, I think there's a great parallel between Southern fans and fans in New Hampshire. Like New Hampshire committed fans, you know, out in Pocono, you have in that part of Pennsylvania of committed fans. But when you're trying to go to a new area, create from the, the ground floor and get new fans, you're competing against so many other factors. And, and that's where understanding what fans want and what they're looking for is is the key to getting their attention. Getting them there and finding a way to get their attention is, is probably the hard work. And you spent a lot of time on that hard work for the better part of the 2000s. Uh, you came into NASCAR at a really interesting time. I want to get into that in a minute, but let's just talk first. How long were you involved in politics and how many campaigns, I guess, did you work on before you began dedicating most of your life to NASCAR? I, I did my first presidential campaign 87 and 88 as a presidential campaign um, I left college early which my parents weren't thrilled about at first <laughs> um, but I, I, I thought it was an important time and spent that entire cycle on the road then ended up in the early 90s doing several congressional races mayoral races in the 92 cycle worked on on uh, that presidential campaign and so I think between 87 and 97, I was most active in political campaigns. Uh, during that time, too, though, I also was doing ballot initiatives and referendums. As During the early 90s, the casino gaming industry was expanding and having uh, referendums and ballot initiatives to approve riverboat gaming in different states. And so I ran a campaign in uh, Detroit to help get the three land-based casinos there. That was a statewide referendum. West Virginia helping them, uh, the Charlestown racetrack, adopt slot machines at the track. Of course, between a candidate campaign and a, and a referendum is the difference between a living, breathing person <laughs> and a piece of paper, an idea. Right. right? So that, was, uh, that made for a different challenge, uh, but still you're trying to figure out the right message to get voters' attention and have them go on election day and vote the right way. So tremendous experience, and, and I recommend it to anyone. The challenge that you undertook in NASCAR related to not just a person, but an icon. You came in shortly after the death of Dale Earnhardt at the 2001 Daytona 500, 
when NASCAR was going through a really turbulent time. Tell us about how that happened. When Dale Earnhardt died at Daytona, this was a transformative event, right, for everyone. Um, you didn't have to be a NASCAR fan to hear about it and see it and kind of know what it meant. Here in D.C., in D.C.'s famous or infamous Beltway, <laughs> there was thousands of cars that did a lap around the Beltway with their lights on in, in tribute to them. You know, growing up a, a Redskins fan and a Joe Gibbs fan, I think a lot of people in, in the Washington area kind of understood, you know, made that connection uh, and, and realized how significant it was. So I got hired. I was at a public relations company here in Washington, D.C. called Powell Tate that was run by Jody Powell, who was President Carter's press secretary, and Sheila Tate, who was uh, Nancy Reagan's press secretary. And it was the first bipartisan PR firm here in, in town. And Still the only bipartisan uh, PR firm well, in town. It seems like there's fewer and fewer. <laughs> um, and while we didn't really work on that many political issues, um, it was it was a good combination to have, and, and it made us unique. And I was heading up crisis practice, crisis communications practice at Powell Tate, and I got a call from a, a former colleague of mine uh, by the name of Tom Griscom. Tom was, he was a PR guy in the Reagan administration, and he had just gotten the opportunity to head back home to Tennessee to be the editor of his hometown newspaper. NASCAR had called him trying to get him to come and help them out in the aftermath of Earnhardt's death. And he, he said he had just found his dream job and he recommended that he call me. They called me and, and I pulled Jody in. And very quickly, the, the, in, the thing for everyone to remember about the loss of Dale Earnhardt, obviously the sport lost its biggest star. It happened during uh, the sport's biggest race, the Daytona 500. And also it was the first race of the first ever network TV deal. There were a lot of things happening. A lot of race. things. It was a yeah. big moment for the sport. The other factor that was really important, when we lost Dale, he was, I believe, the fourth driver in about 18 months to die on track. Right. And the media were really putting the heat on NASCAR. And I think sponsors were. I think fans were. They, the question was out was, what are you going to do about protecting your drivers because all the drivers have pretty much perished with the same basilar skull fracture injury and there was this actually a pretty prescient piece of journalism that ed hinton had done and the, the run-up to that race for i believe was it the orlando sentinel then i, I think, think that's right i think that's exactly right. about would nascar consider mandating these new head and neck restraint devices to help prevent drivers from dying in these sorts of incidents and then as you said the last lap of your biggest race your biggest star dies of, of the same that, injury of that same injury so and at this point nascar had been around for uh, just over 50 years they've gone through phases where they lost drivers and you know they kind of moved on it was an accepted part of the sport well, times had changed on NASCAR, I think, very quickly. And now that they were on a different stage with bigger partners and, and bigger sponsors, they had to do something. Um, and uh, I'll tell you a funny story. We had our first meeting in Washington, D.C. after we got hired. And the meeting included myself and Jody Powell, Bill France Jr., Jim Hunter, George Pine, 
And the Francis family lawyer, John Cassidy, um, who was working at a firm, still does, uh, Baker Botts, and they were representing NASCAR. And John Cassidy and the France family, he had represented them for the, the previous 20 or 25 years, a very long uh, relationship. So we're at a long conference table, and Jody's at one end of it, and Bill, Mr. France is at the other end, and, and they're both smoking cigarettes. I remember that. <laughs> And so I spoke up and I, I said, Mr. France, uh, we've been looking at the coverage and we see a disturbing trend is, is the, obviously the, the, the media and others are very concerned about these basal skull fractures, the, the, the fatalities on track and NASCAR continues to say no comment or they're not available. And I made the case that NASCAR is going to have to say something. You've got to defend yourself. Mr. France, um, didn't really react to that very positively. He went on to do a fair bit of uh, cussing, was worried about anything that NASCAR said the, the media would turn it around on him and use it against him and, and make no, no ground at all. Jody took a long drag off his cigarette and blew the smoke out. And Jody was a, was a Georgian and had this remarkable voice that he used as a tool. And he says, look, I learned a long time ago, it, it makes you feel better in the short term to complain about the media. But at the end of the day, being pissed off <laughs> is not a strategy. <laughs> and this hung out there for a second or two, and everyone was fairly quiet. Because everybody in the room knows Bill France Jr. is not accustomed to having somebody talk to him this way. Exactly, yes. exactly. And then the great Jim Hunter started laughing. And, and if, if you've ever heard Jim Hunter laugh, you know his laugh. It's an infectious laugh. And, and, and then he laughed, and I think others in the room started laughing. I think even Mr. France kind of laughed a little bit. But this is very important because, and, and look, the other thing too is it, it had not been lost on any of us that, you know, over the six weeks since we had lost Dale Earnhardt, these men in the room, you know, hadn't laughed or smiled really about anything. This sure. was Dale Earnhardt. Not only was the biggest star in the sport, but he was their friend. He was their brother. He was their son. He was. This was a very close connection. But what Jody said was very important because I think it's the first time they started thinking about the fact that you can have a strategy when it comes to PR. You can have a message. You can defend yourself. You know, we went on fr from there. You know, we, we like to say in a crisis that in a crisis, people care about three things. What happened? Why did it happen? And what are you going to do to make sure it doesn't happen again? And that was the third part. We ended up going to work and in August of that year, August 21st, 2001, holding a massive press conference in Atlanta, Georgia, I think titled the, the Earnhardt Report, detailing those things. And, and we had biomechanist and we had physicists and doctors. Uh, Dr. Radden was there. Um, so some really smart people who talked about... Dr. Dean Sicking. The, Dr. The, Dean the, Sicking. The later inventor of the safer barrier. Yeah. Correct. And so they talked a lot about what happened and why it happened. But perhaps the most important part was then for NASCAR officials to get up and talk about what are we going to do to make sure it doesn't happen again? And that was the pledge to build the R&D center. That was the pledge to improve safety, which then we saw head and neck restraints. We saw safer barriers. You know, the safer barrier debate went through a lot of 
different phases where people start talking about actual soft walls and Dr. Singh, you know, realized the physics of a soft wall will just catapult cars and make it less safe. So all these things, the, the, the new car, uh, which we'll get into later, I'm sure, but, but all these things were, were important commitments to it. And today, when you think about safety in motorsports, hands down, you think about NASCAR as being the leader. I think that was really important because had they done nothing, and there had been more fatalities, it would have been very bad bad for the sport and its partners. But at the same time, as you mentioned, this was the start of a new TV deal, and ratings actually were quite high in the aftermath of losing Dale Earnhardt, probably in part because suddenly NASCAR is on the cover of Time. It's on three-quarters of the front page of the New York Times, I think, was devoted following Monday to the crash. There was a lot of attention being focused on NASCAR than ever before, and Perhaps there may have been a temptation to look at that and think, well, things are, are doing okay here, but you essentially had to approach it as if things are great in terms of, if you look at just audience metrics, but in terms of where things are, the way we're perceived, this is a crisis. This is a really important time in NASCAR's history, right? That, that's exactly right. And so it was, it was about, the, the other big change was getting NASCAR to talk to the media. Really much time, they, they really... NASCAR didn't have what would be considered a robust PR department. Um, in fact, back in those days, they ceded that role to Winston, the title sponsor at the time. I made the case that engaging the media would give NASCAR currency. They would be into the system. They would be there would be give and take. There would be trading of information. We, you know, it, it's better to be inside the tent than outside the tent. And so, I ended up being a consultant, stayed at Palatate and uh, represented NASCAR on a number of issues that included, I was on the phone with NASCAR the morning of 9-11. I think it was, um, New Hampshire was coming up. Right. What do we do about this? How do we communicate about it? I advised them on when uh, Toyota was coming into the sport. How do we talk about Toyota and how are fans going to react to it? and, And what do we say about it? So I worked on that. Uh, and even um, with the introduction of Nextel as the new sponsor. In 2004, NASCAR asked me to come on board board full-time as a full-time employee. And so I ended up in Daytona at my role there from 2004 until 2011. And that was a fairly natural transition in 2004 because from 2001, from that meeting forward, that had pretty much been your primary focus yeah, at Pilot Date. Right? That's correct. Right. Obviously talking to the media was was a big one, Ramsey, about how NASCAR learned from the aftermath of Dornhart's death. Anything else, any key moments that you remember that NASCAR took on and said, this is the way we're going to do things now as opposed to before, or that this is the way we're going to speak to people in a different way? Well, <laughs> there, there are a couple of examples. When, so I got in-house in 2004, about the end of that year, it was well, there was several, a couple months had gone by. George Pine, who was the COO of NASCAR at the time, or perhaps he was chief marketing officer, but he, he came, he rolled down to my office and he complained on a Monday morning that we weren't getting enough coverage and we we're getting beat up and we we're kind of nowhere to be seen. I said, well, of, of course we're getting beat up, George. We don't let ESPN or any of their ABC affiliates or any of the CBS affiliates in to cover the race. ESPN wasn't a rights holder and therefore it wasn't credentialed. And, and what yeah. I was originally told was, yeah, that was, it was contractual and they weren't a rights holder. And, and after doing, spending a little time and doing some digging, <laughs> I found that wasn't the case, that 
some people were trying to take care of their partners a, a little too much um, when in reality it was really hurting the sport. And, and it wasn't that ESPN or ABC or CBS was barred. NASCAR was requiring them to pay a fee to come cover the sport. So think about that, right? Mm -hmm. We're asking them to pay a fee <laughs> to give us free coverage. It made no sense. And so I finally, George rolled down in my office one day, and I finally made this case to him. And he, and he looked at me, and I said, there's no con contractual obligation here. We're just being overzealous and helping our, our partners. George says, all right, why don't you go up to Bristol and talk to them, Bristol, Connecticut, and go talk to ESPN. So I ended up going up there and not really understanding the, the lion's den I was going into because of the previous breakup uh, between NASCAR and ESPN. I talked to an executive there, uh, by the name of Norby Williamson, who they really didn't even let me into the building. They, they kind of, there was a conference room behind the reception desk, which they put me in there and, and, and Norby came down and it seemed like for 10 straight minutes, he read me the riot act about how, you know, we grew up to, you know, our, our two properties grew up together in NASCAR and ESPN. They helped each other build. And then we kind of just cut them out and we've treated them terrible ever since. And I said to him, I said, look, I don't know about that. I wasn't here then. You know, th I think it was August. I said, February's coming. Why don't you get a sports center set, bring your talent, and you can broadcast from the infield uh, all week long during the Daytona 500. He says, we can do that. I said, absolutely. Set it up. I left the meeting and I called George Pine and Dick Glover and told them what I had done because I had no authority at all to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and they thought it was a good idea, fortunately. So I, I didn't lose my job. But that that uh, February Sports Center broadcast live from from the infield at at the Daytona 500. And I, I bring that up because that's a an example of some of the minutia I ran into. My first 12 months there was <clears throat> cleaning up some of some of these things and then ultimately putting putting together um what i still consider was was one of the great uh is one of the great pr teams in in sports the safety story ramsey like i can remember the, the you mentioned the r&d center when that was built and nascar investing millions of dollars to build that facility in concord north carolina i can remember all the the positive coverage that that received i mean certainly uh making the hans device at the time, I think Hutchins as well, mandatory uh, in the wake, I think, of the, the number three uh, accident report uh, from that press conference at Atlanta. That was big. The, the safer barriers that were rolled out over the next five or six years after Earnhardt's death. All those things, I think, were really good stories for NASCAR to tell. Was it easy to help tell those stories? Do, do you feel like you, you had a hand in the way that they were properly conveyed, that it did kind of stem the tide of NASCAR as this monolithic, maybe uncaring organization that isn't worried about the fact that it has drivers dying on a regular basis to shifting to now where it's viewed as the safest racing sanctioning body, you could argue, of the last 20 years. I mean, there haven't been any fatalities since Earnhardt. These stories were important and it was important to tell that story, but they were mostly defensive. I mean, safety sport stories don't grow the sport. Safety mm -hmm. stories aren't going to get fans excited. More people aren't going to races because it's safe. In fact, you know, it could have the opposite effect. I remember in 2007, the NFL had just come up with their first concussion protocol. And I had a long conversation with my counterpart in the NFL, who was just getting into this. And I said, look, you have to do this. You have to protect your players. You got to figure out what to do. 
but you're not going to sell a single more ticket by making the sport safe, but mm -hmm. you have to do it. So it's a tricky thing. It's a, it's an important story. The R&D Center continues to be uh, critical both for the competition uh, of the sport and the safety of the sport. So, And it's something I'm very proud of. It's just not something that you know helps the sport grow. Internally, there was also some driver pushback on safety in 2001 and you know, famously maybe infamously Tony Stewart refused at one point to perhaps don one of the the, the uh, head and neck restraints before going out for practice I think at Talladega did you, did you get involved in that side of things in helping NASCAR deal with the the, the driver PR side I, I did so and look some of this stems back to Dale Earnhardt who considered him a great innovator of, of safety when people like Dr. Sicking, Dr. Radden took a look at his setup. They they very objectively said, you know, was not the best setup. But right. so many people took the the lead. And, and a lot of, no one likes change. Athletes certainly don't like change. And I can remember Tony and others talking about it hurting their peripheral vision. My focus was on NASCAR. Because so at that point, NASCAR, remember the phrase they were, um, they hadn't mandated, they had suggested it. Um, it finally took NASCAR, it had to take the leadership position and mandate it and say, this is what all drivers are going to do and have to do. Okay, let's pause the podcast here. I want to tell you about a product that is designed for guys who want to stop hair loss. Now, I've been fortunate enough to avoid that, but as someone in my 40s, I certainly have a lot of friends who are facing hair loss. I think it's no secret that I've covered many NASCAR drivers who have also found themselves facing hair loss. It's a situation that millions have faced. Two-thirds of men start losing their hair before turning 35. And I'm sure many who have a little less hair than before have wondered if there's a real solution. Well, there is. To help guys with preventing or stopping hair loss, there is Keeps. Keeps offers generic versions of two FDA-approved hair loss products. Both of them have longevity in the market, but now they are cheaper and easier to obtain it takes less than five minutes to sign up for Keeps. I've been to the website, you answer a few questions, you take a few photos, and a licensed doctor will review the information and provide a treatment plan. For about 10 to $30 a month or a dollar a day, this is an affordable and great way to help fight your hair loss. But even better is that we have a deal for you. Your first month with Keeps is free if you use this offer. To receive your first month of treatment for free, Go to keeps.com slash NASCAR. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash NASCAR. That's a free month of treatment at keeps.com slash NASCAR. Keeps. Hair today, hair tomorrow. And now let's return to our conversation. You joined NASCAR in 2004, as you mentioned, full-time. And at that point, there's a lot happening. The safety storm... Uh, w was weathered, I think, in the previous three years. And now in 2004, you've got Nextel then coming in as the new title sponsor, replacing R.J. Reynolds, which, had, of course, had been around for 30-plus years at the time. And there were some competition changes going on. Brian France had just taken over as CEO the previous fall. Uh, and at the same time, this was boom times for NASCAR. I mean, I, I think a lot of people would probably look at you know, what was the apex of popularity uh, in recent years for NASCAR, and a lot of people probably point to around mid-2000s, 2005. What was it like managing PR then? Because I'm sure we look at it retroactively and think, oh, 
things must have just been sunshine and roses all the time. Things were good. What was it like managing all of, of the stories? Because I'm sure it was much more difficult probably on the inside than it looked from the outside. NASCAR was the rocket ship at that point. It was, like you said, it was, everything was up. I think new sponsors were coming in. The, the switch from cigarettes to technology mm-hmm. with a cell phone company was 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 a big story. But the, the challenge then and then still the challenge now is how do we keep getting new fans and how do we retain them mm-hmm. so during those times a lot of people came and checked out the sport a lot of kids were getting their parents to watch the sport you'd go to see people or go to a party and people would come up to you i'd come home for christmas and i would have so many people talk about how they're into nascar and they're watching it and so that was all positive but and, and i think that you really got to give the France family and and the leadership there credit where there was never a time where they said, okay, we're good. It's done. It's how do we keep growing? How do we keep building? Which is what any business should be doing. So that it seemed to me like that was always the challenge. There was right. There was never a time where we're good, get get to the racetrack and it takes care of itself. Because the other thing about growth and, and, and growth in business is that always has to be managed. Sometimes that can be tougher than when there's not a lot going on. At this time, of course, you're, you're living, you're working in Daytona, this time of growth for NASCAR, and you're working alongside France family members and Jim Hunter. Uh, what was it like being among that group? What memories do you have of that? First of all, my time at NASCAR, I loved every minute of every day. Anyone that works in NASCAR will tell you that it's the people, first and foremost, mm-hmm. the people you meet. Um, quality people and look there's a lot of emotion in NASCAR both in NASCAR corporate among the fan base and and that's one of the things that makes it very special getting to work with someone like Jim Hunter was really remarkable because every time he opened his mouth uh, you learned something new and and you learned about the history of the sport from the old days practically from from the sands of Daytona Beach Uh, and the characters and what I learned from Jim Hunter day in and day out was how the sport was built Mm -hmm. so you know where I didn't get involved you know until 2001 you know I'm I'm missing 50 years there but every day and 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 it made me understand what this family had been through that this is a family that put it all on the line and sacrificed it and 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 made it work um, and so that's something when you're in NASCAR that you're reminded all the time. No one person is bigger than NASCAR. I've heard Jim Hunter say it to other people in NASCAR, and I certainly heard Mike Helton tell it to drivers. Right. And, and that is, it, it is not one person, it's not one personality, it is a massive organization, but it's connected by the people. And I think back, you know, and look, and I say I loved every day, and there were there were good days and there were tough days. I can remember hustling over to care centers um, after there had been on-track incidents and, and been very concerned. But then there were days like I was very active in uh, the selection committee for the Hall of Fame location and then had the opportunity to... Uh, create the nominating and voting process. That first meeting of the Hall of Fame voting committee 
was about as special as day as I can ever remember. That was same here. Yeah, you were amazing. there. Yeah. You, re you remember the conversations, the people, the people in the room. That was the first time ever. This group of people were all in the same room together, right. Right. and I had the the immense honor of looking out from the podium and um, seeing the generations in there, and then for the first time ever, not just sitting in a bar talking about who the greatest driver is. Here we are, the greatest drivers and the greatest people of their generation talking about who they're going to put on NASCAR's Mount Rushmore. So many, so many really uh, amazing moments. And, and look, there were some on-track moments when th this epitomizes the yin and yang of NASCAR in a way. <laughs> that 2001 July race at Daytona, where Dale Earnhardt wins in the cover of night in an amazing victory was was what sports is all about. The other part of sports is then people start shooting holes in it and saying right. that, you know, he was, and I really, that, that's still today. They helped uh, Dale Jr. Well, and, yeah. and at that time, it, what's interesting from the PR perspective is you had a driver, Jimmy Spencer, sort of propagating this he, conspiracy theory that Dale Jr. won because NASCAR helped him. Yes, and it's <laughs> never helpful. And, and we can talk a lot, you know, and that's the thing is NASCAR's made up of a bunch of different personalities and different factions that have their own interest. NASCAR, the sanctioning body, is trying to move this ship all in one direction while drivers sometimes have their own agenda. Team owners sometimes have their own agenda. Track owners sometimes have their own agenda. And when they get out of line, uh, it makes it very tough for the sport to, to move forward because the fans are sitting there right. watching this. And um, so that, that can – look, you know, I remember we – you know, in an effort – uh, an altruistic and a good effort to to make the car more safe. We had the the car of tomorrow, and this has gone through uh, a number of different phases by now. And I think it's probably pretty well dialed in. But initially, it was the drivers that really created a, a PR nightmare uh, for us. Uh, the first race with the car of tomorrow was at Bristol, and uh, Kyle Busch wins the race. And he says on national TV, he said, I'm so glad I won this race because, and he turns around and points at the car because I want to tell everyone this car sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Not helpful. The drivers, I always say, and still today, drivers drive public opinion in NASCAR. Their voice matters more than anyone else. Drivers can make this sport do great things or not do great things. You know, we talk all the time. People talk about, and I might get in trouble here. Every time a truck series driver opens his or her mouth, they're saying how much they love it and how great it is. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that cup drivers, like finger drivers, ought to be exaggerating or not telling the truth. But when they're airing their dirty laundry, you know, on national television, um, it's it's not helpful. You know, um, they used to say, you know, we say all the time, it'd be like a you know, the chef of a restaurant standing out front telling people the food stinks here, right? right? Now, look, there was a reason for that, too. And and NASCAR, you know, we did not communicate very well with the drivers or teams at that time. So they were they were angry. They were upset. They had a, felt like they weren't being listened to. And, and that's true. You know, there used to be, and I guess there still is this, this line where NASCAR is a benevolent dictatorship. And I think today there's a lot more communication. I think one of the things that I was 
happily involved in is how can we communicate better with drivers and teams? How do we get their input? And this is something, you know, the old guard of NASCAR was never very comfortable with. There, you know, I think back in the days when Richard Petty kind of led the charge for unionization, that got mm-hmm. everyone very concerned about if they're all together, then there'd be issues. But Look, more communi- I'm a communications guy, and I, I believe that more communication is always better than less communication. So the trends you've seen the last couple of years with driver council, team owner council, manufacturers council, uh, those things are good because if you get the driver's feelings, if they have input and they're involved in the process, that they're not just presented with a car that, by the way, a much safer car. I mean, there were a lot of reasons that the car tomorrow had advantages, but I think from i guess a competitive standpoint and the aesthetic standpoint drivers felt like you know why don't we consulted if you get them on board then they will help you tell the story better and they drive the fan opinion they fan they they drive fan opinion i think i was in one of the first uh driver council meetings and it was it was at the r&d center and there was discussion which i think from the nascar point of view we thought well this will be a short conversation and it was about downforce Mm -hmm. and even among the drivers they had wildly different thoughts about downforce i think Juan pablo montoya uh stood up and said he wanted more downforce and i think it was kyle bush who wanted the exact opposite. <laughs> right. So even among right. drivers, but that was useful for NASCAR because then, you know, we understood, okay, well, there's a difference of opinion here. You know, there, there's, you know, there's no consensus on lots of downforce or then, and, and having no downforce versus having lots of downforce. And how do we, what can we do then to dial that in and right. what's best for the sport? Right. I think that was, that was 2009. That was before the even, the current generation of driver council where you guys were meeting with gr- drivers as a group three or four times a year. That's correct. How do you strike that balance though, Ramsey, where y- you want them to help tell the message that you want to convey to fans, but at the same time you want them to be themselves and have the, their own the, opinions? Well, see, this is important. And NASCAR got into a mode where it then began over, far too much over-regulating um, driver behavior. Let's take a step back and remember something that's really important. NASCAR's forefathers, our DNA, are bootleggers. They were running liquor. They were outlaws. And that outlaw character is so important to NASCAR. And some of the things, quite frankly, that NASCAR did chipped away about it. And I'll I'll remember one day, following a race at Bristol, Jeff Gordon pushed Matt Kenseth in the chest on pit road. And there was a minor skirmish that ensued, but, and, and then, a, then a lot of talk. And that next Monday morning, we had had a meeting, and we were going to penalize Jeff Gordon 25 points, which at that time with that system was, was a very severe penalty and, and a lot of money. And I remember getting into it with Jim Hunter. We, I said, why are we penalizing him? It was a push. And and Jim had very strong feelings why we should, and other people in NASCAR had very strong strong feelings why we should, and um, we did. We ended up penalizing him, and and I felt that was a turning point at NASCAR. It it sent a 
serious signal to the competitors not to be themselves and not to show emotion. And there was a lot of confusion because then NASCAR executives would give speeches and talk about showing emotion and we should do this. And then they would get penalized. And if we want to draw back and look at kind of where NASCAR is today and some of the issues, these are some of the seedlings that I wish we could go back and and change because I think that that moment changed the sport dramatically. And I'd like to go back to a time where if we could have made that decision differently and, you know, NASCAR has an obligation and a responsibility to maintain order and safety, but there's there, there has to be a way where uh, we recognize that, you know, race car drivers are tough guys. Race car is a sport of emotion and there's got to find a way to not glorify it, but we should not be... You know, we are different than other sports. Right. Um, that this is racing. Our forefathers are bootleggers. That the further we kind of get away from that brand, the harder it is uh, for the sport. And I've talked about this before. I'll talk about it again. I think NASCAR lost some of that brand identity. I, I think, you know, if you think about some of the great brands in America, you think about Jack Daniels and, and Harley Davidson. They are decidedly outlaw brands right but they've never gone and run away from the brand jack daniels has a menacing menacing black label Mm -hmm. it is from tennessee jack daniels and that brand has never apologized from being from tennessee and its southern roots and jack daniels wants the same thing nascar wants they want to grow that brand they want more people drinking Jack Daniels, not just in the South, but all over America and all over the world. And still today, people in New York, Chicago, and LA and everywhere else drink lots of Jack Daniels because they've been committed to that brand. They didn't go and try to make a different brand for New York or Chicago or LA. It is proud of being from Tennessee, proud of being from the South. And and I think this is an area where NASCAR really has to think long and hard about is what is its brand and how do we get back to our roots to one energize the core and avid fans but also begin that long road of converting casual fans and avid fans and non-fans to casual fans by going back to saying outlaw culture even if it maybe goes aside from what an image conscious corporate america (laughs) sponsor might view is the right way to portray yourself. Right. I think that's right. Look, Jack Daniels and, and Harley Davidson do quite well as corporations <laughs> by celebrating True. those 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 outlaw roots. Um, yeah. So I think I think that's an, an important part of kind of w- what is the sports identity and right. and um, and it's something that that they can lock onto. It's interesting though because that Gordon Kenseth incident that you mentioned that was two thousand six. And four years later, NASCAR moves into the boys have added era, which seemed to be a little bit of a calculated, let's step back from where we were a few years ago and try to put this more, not just in drivers' hands on the racetrack, but allow them to be themselves a little bit more by taking retribution or exacting revenge when they feel they've been wrong. Was that a step in the, the right direction, do you think? I, 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 I might have hugged Robin Pemberton <laughs> after after that announcement. I, I, I enjoyed it immensely. Um, yeah, and of course, and, and in NASCAR, anytime they do something, right, 
it gets put to test. Right. And so that announcement was made in January of that year. Right. And Speed Weeks started just a few weeks later. And on the first day, and I think in the first practice of Speed Weeks, this was tested where there was a fight between two drivers. Right. Um, I believe Tony, Tony and, and Kurt Busch. Kurt Busch, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> and so it put it to the test right quickly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, message sent in that case. After NASCAR Ramsey, you moved into working more on the team side. And uh, I know that two team owners you worked with were two recent owners who tried to get in the cup and then it didn't work out. The late Harry Scott of uh, H. Scott Motorsports and Brandon Davis, who had Swan Racing, both of them had forays of, what, a couple of seasons each, and they weren't able to make their teams work. What are the lessons, I guess, from that, from working with those teams? Both Harry uh, and Brandon are, are similar. They're, they're young businessmen, very successful. Both loved NASCAR. They were not in it to... It wasn't a get-rich quick thing and get in get out they really love the sport and the grassroots end of the sport it is instructive they neither one of them not only could they not make a profit they couldn't break even it was not sustainable it did not make sense for them to stay in the sport so that is something that i, and I still today think is very important look we've now seen i think two teams are closing or have closed this year one that won the championship last year we talked about brand and where NASCAR is the brand, I think, in terms of the internal, the, the economic structure, based on what I've seen from the small owner side of the sport, it's got to be changed. Uh, I remember having a long conversation with, with Harry on this, and, and his frustration was that the way the charters were set up and the, and the, and the system was set up, that um, they still benefited the legacy teams and, and the rich tended to get to, to get richer and, and and the less finance teams just really never have a chance. Something I think obviously and has got to be done to make sure that it makes business sense to be in the sport. Like it, it it's the Baltimore Orioles lost I think a near historic number of games this year. And that organization is still going to find a way to make money. If you're a car, if you're a team in the sport and you're competing week in and week out, you should have a chance to at least break even. And look, I, I look, I've been through all the conversations about, you know, you can't have a salary cap or a spending cap and, and that's probably right, but there's the the current course that the sport is on is is in a really dangerous place. It's got to make sense and and once they fin NASCAR is going to figure it out. And once they do that's when you're going to, I think, have uh, new investors in the sport, new owners in the sport, a lot of eagerness. I mean, look, the one good thing is the racing today is fantastic. And NASCAR, and, and there's young stars coming up, and they need to find a way to capitalize on that. But they've got to figure out the financials to make it worthwhile for new owners and new business people to want to come and invest. New person guiding the helm now in terms of that direction with Jim France. You've worked with the France family for years. Any thoughts on on Jim? Jim France is so important to the sport. And I've told people for years, and and I'd, I'd advise my clients, Harry and Brandon and others, that don't forget about Jim France. Um, Jim France, while being uh, quiet, stoic, 
is a guy who understands this sport. He understands racing. Um, he's a guy who can make tough decisions, and he will. Um, so I think whether it's interim or long-term, Jim France has always been there. It's not like he wasn't involved. He's always been part of the sport. Given the circumstances, Jim France was certainly by far the most logical choice to have in there as an interim role. And whether he stays in interim or full-time, he will make good decisions. Keep an eye on that. Appreciate all of your insight, explaining your sojourn through NASCAR here on the Sojourner. So. Thanks again for having me. I, I enjoyed this. This was good. My pleasure, Nate. Thank you. The NASCAR NBC podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify. Please leave a rating or review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us out. As always, you can send feedback to me on Twitter. At Nate Ryan is my handle. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR NBC podcast. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.